0: Hi folks, back in the Fist News studio for our week in review. Murdochs are back. Once again, top of the charts. It's like a best selling album that just keeps rolling. We've got huge developments in that case on the federal side. Criminal charges against Alec Murdoch in federal court. We're gonna walk you through those charges and the ramifications of them in a pissing contest. Between state and federal prosecutors. We're going to dive into that. We've also got an update on another judicial scandal in South Carolina involving probate court. Our research director, Jen Wood, has been digging deep on some serious alleged malfeasance that could go much bigger than the stories that we've unearthed so far on fistnews.com. I'm going to dive into that with Jen Wood. After that, an update on South Carolina's abortion debate. A ton of stuff happening there, folks. Court challenges. Temporary restraining orders. We've got all sorts of stuff to address on that issue, and we're going to dive into the specific details of that debate that the mainstream media is just glossing over, and not really talking about. We're going to give you the very nuts and bolts of whether or not that law will be struck down or upheld. All that and more is heading your way on the Weekend Review. Right, folks, we are back to the Murdoch murders, crime, and corruption saga. I promise we're trying to cover other stuff here. Trying to cover other true crime stuff. We've got a 2024 presidential election coming. We've got a ton of stuff happening at the South Carolina State House, But the Murdoch story just keeps churning, keeps going, keeps generating huge headlines. The big news this week, the federal government jumping into this case in a big way. A 22-count, 28-page indictment of Alec Murdoch issued this Wednesday. Now, there are a host of fiscal allegations contained in this indictment. And I want to walk you through them real quick. We've got crimes against the estate of Donna Badger. Uh, we've got crimes against Hakeem Pinckney, against Natasha Thomas, against the Plyler sisters. We've got the Satterfield estate. Tons of victims here referenced in these federal charges. But the charges were eerily similar to those already filed, 102 of them, in fact, by the state of South Carolina. And that has led to a pretty significant prosecutorial pissing contest. And I want you to say that Five times real fast, prosecutorial pissing contest, prosecutorial pissing contest. I'm only going to do it twice because I don't think I could do it five times. But some serious bad blood between prosecutors in the office of South Carolina Attorney General Alan Wilson and the office of new U.S. Attorney Adair Ford Burroughs. Now, Adair Ford Burroughs, appointed to her post by U.S. President Joe Biden. She replaces an interim, Corey Ellis, who followed another interim. Uh, who followed two previous Trump appointees who lasted uh, roughly a year, one of them now a federal judge. But there's been not a lot of continuity in that U.S. attorney's office. There's been, obviously, tons of continuity. Alan Wilson's been the attorney general of South Carolina. He's on his fourth term, people. So he's been there a while, but not a lot of continuity on that federal side. So a uh, little bit of an unfair fight, maybe. The state's certainly well ahead of the feds as it relates to the charges against Alec Murdoch. But this created a huge, huge discussion this week because there was a big Twitter thread by an attorney, Sarah Azari. We have talked about Sarah before on this show. Sarah's got great legal insight, people. Now, she is close to Murdoch's attorneys, Dick Harpulian and Jim Griffin. But again, not discounting her insight. She's got great insight. But, but uh, Azari posted a lengthy Twitter thread this week that delved into this. And according to her, the attorney general's office reneged on an agreement with the feds. According to her, at the very beginning of this process, back when the Murdoch investigations were first ramping up, she claimed that there was an agreement between federal prosecutors and state prosecutors that the state would focus on the murder charges, the drug charges, the roadside shooting involving Alec Murdoch and the notorious cousin Eddie Smith, and the feds would handle the financial crimes. Now, obviously, the feds have done a great job on the Murdoch-related financial crimes that they have prosecuted. In fact, if you followed our special projects director, Dylan Nolan's coverage of the Russell Lafitte trial down in Charleston, you know the feds just did a bang-up job, bang-up job prosecuting uh, Russell Lafitte, got guilty verdicts on multiple counts in that case. But now, things are getting interesting as it relates to the Murdoch case, because the allegation that the Attorney General's office reneged on a deal that was hotly disputed, hotly disputed by sources close to Wilson, all of whom said that there was never any such agreement in place. And in fact, there was a statement issued by the AG. I wanted to read this because this was the statement that was issued by the Attorney General's office in response to the federal charges. Let me read this real quick. The financial allegations in this in this case involved alleged abuse of state lawyer licenses dealing with state court legal actions before state court judges with alleged misappropriation of state court-approved settlements. How many times are they going to throw the word state in there, people? I think they're trying to say something with this statement. But anyway, Wilson said that the federal charges will have no effect, no effect on his office's goals to hold uh, Murdoch accountable and get justice for the victims in this case. But a very interesting statement from, from the state, some serious pushback against the feds. And in fact, I'm told that there was a heated conversation between Wilson and his lieutenants and Burroughs and her lieutenants in the aftermath of these charges being filed. Basically, the AG's office accusing the feds of copying their work, which uh, again, things getting very interesting in this case. But Murdoch will appear before a federal magistrate this coming week, this coming Wednesday in Charleston uh, for a bond hearing, unless he waives it But that'll happen on Wednesday. And meanwhile, just yesterday, Friday, in Richland County Court, uh, it was decided that there will be a status conference on the state charges on September 11 of this year, the state financial charges against Alec Murdoch. Now, how could this come into play? Why is this important? I mean, Alec Murdoch's already been sentenced to two life sentences for murdering his wife and his younger son. He is incarcerated in an undisclosed location. Uh, we believe that to be McCormick Correctional Institution. That's what everyone's saying. We're not 100% sure on that, but that's where Murdoch is, is alleged to be housed, a maximum security facility. But this situation doesn't seem all that important considering he's behind bars already for the rest of his life. What, what's the deal here? Well, I'll tell you why it matters. And on this point, Sarah Azari did have some good points. Because let's assume for a moment that Alec Murdoch's murder convictions are vacated on appeal. Do I think that's going to happen? No. No, I do not. I think Judge Clifton Newman, who presided over that trial, did an incredible job with his rulings on admissibility, with his rulings on the various objections that came up during that trial. Newman took great care. Great care. In fact, if you recall that trial, there were trials within the trial over whether or not these things would be admitted or not, the financial crimes, various other Evidence and testimony. Judge Newman did an amazing job. So I don't think Ock Murdoch's appeal has a snowball's chance in hell. But if it does, that's where this gets interesting. Because the stage is set now with these federal charges for Murdoch's attorneys, Jim Griffin and Dick Harputlian, to rush for a plea deal with the federal government to get a quick plea deal approved so that if those murder convictions are vacated, guess what? the feds are at the front of the line all of a sudden. In other words, a federal plea would mean that Murdoch could potentially be transferred to the custody of the U.S. Bureau of Prisons as opposed to the State Department of Corrections, assuming he is ultimately convicted on those state financial charges. Because folks, that trial is not going to happen at the very earliest until this fall. And in fact, from what Dylan Nolan was saying at that court hearing on Friday, it may not happen until next year. The state charges, the state trial on the fiscal charges. So if that doesn't happen until next year, and there's already a federal plea in place, guess what? The feds are at the front of the line. But again, none of that will matter until, until and unless unless those murder convictions are vacated. So let's talk about where Murdoch is right now and what's happening. We mentioned McCormick earlier, but there were some rumors that started this past week about Murdoch potentially requesting a transfer And they started on the TikTok account of an individual who goes by the name of Jumpsuit Pablo, a former South Carolina Department of Corrections uh, inmate who now hosts a a very popular TikTok page, uh, over 400,000 followers, people. Jumpsuit Pablo, he's huge. He's huge. Posted a, a video, a reel, I guess they call. What do they call them on TikTok, Dylan? I have no idea. I'm I'm not on the TikTok. In fact, Dylan's even told me that my joking about not being on the TikTok has gotten a little old. But jumpsuit Pablo posted a video or a reel of an inmate who claims that Alec Murdoch told him he's requested a transfer to prison far. Let's let's cut to that clip real quick.
1: Yeah, I heard that y'all wanted an update on Alex. Me and him was at Kirkland together. And, uh, we talked a little bit. And he claimed he's innocent for his charges, but he's in fear of his life, uh, what other inmates or someone might do to him or like prison guards. So he put him for an interstate compact where he could get shipped to another state. As far as I know, I think he got shipped to Florida and he says in about two or three years, he's going to come back up and he said he's going to be discharged because he done lost everything and he claims he's innocent. But, I mean, they found him and put him in jail. So, I mean, that's all to dinner. As uh, far as his character, he seemed like an all right dude, you know. If he did do what he did, then he got real bad problems. And I hope he gets the punishment that he deserves. And if we can give you another update later on, we will. But right now, they got him, like, PC protected custody. And I don't think you can even, like, track him right now because they're shipping him to other state and stuff.
0: All right. So will Murdoch be transferred to Florida? First of all, no evidence that that individual, very poorly concealed, by the way, the dental records, I think, are going to give that guy away. But anyway, no evidence that that individual actually talked to Alec Murdoch. But assuming Murdoch has actually made this request, is there any chance he would be transferred to Florida? Sources familiar with his incarceration status have told us absolutely not. First of all, With over 100 state charges pending, with now nearly two dozen federal charges pending, Alec Murdoch's not going anywhere anytime soon. He's going to have to be appearing multiple times in court. His attorneys are going to have to have uh, access to him regularly as he addresses all these charges and as his appeal on the murder convictions moves through the process. So they're going to need access to him on the reg for the foreseeable future, and the cost... And the security concerns that would go with transferring him from an out-of-state location, just not feasible uh, at this moment. Now, once all of these legal dramas are resolved, there's a very strong chance Murdoch could be transferred as part of an interstate cooperative agreement uh, within the correctional system. Uh, So obviously we'll keep an eye on that. But for, for the time being, no chance Alec Murdoch's going anywhere. So as he continues to receive all those love letters... We'll continue to keep you posted on his status. By the way, our research director, Jen Jen Wood, has filed the latest FOIA request for the next round of Alex Murdoch's prison correspondence. So we hope to have that information for you very soon as we continue to cover this story. But the big news again in the Murdoch world this week, a huge legal drama unfolding between state and federal prosecutors over who gets to try those financial crimes, who's going to get those first convictions or plea deals related to out Murdoch's many financial crimes. Again, last week we talked about the, the attorneys on the civil side going against each other, Eric Bland and Ronnie Richter going up against Dick Harpootland and Jim Griffin. This time those lawyers are out of, the, out of the fight. This time it's the prosecutors fighting against each other. So legal drama on every front. Here is the Murdoch murders, crime, and corruption saga rolls on to keep up to speed on the latest with all these dramas. Keep it tuned to Fitz News. We were the tip of spear on this story. And we've continued to break every big story on the Murdoch saga as it has evolved and unfolded over the past few months. Keep it here for the latest on all things Murdoch. All right, Jen Wood, we have been talking about corruption in South Carolina's court systems for a very long time. And obviously the Murdoch crime and corruption saga has elevated that conversation to a whole new energy level, just attracted international attention to just how corrupt, how dirty South Carolina's court system uh, has been over the years, but we're talking today about a part of that system that doesn't get quite the attention, hasn't attracted quite the headlines, uh, probate court. Uh, before we dive into this incredible story that you've uncovered, tell us first, what is probate court?
2: Well, probate court is not the most exciting part of the legal system, but it is um, complicated and it's very important. Um, Probate court manages estates of deceased persons, uh, minor settlements, guardianships, conservatorships um, of minors and those incompetent of managing their own affairs and involuntary commitments to um, mental institutions. So it's a big part of our court system, and most of us end up there at some point. I mean, you even get your marriage license in South Carolina at the probate court, so it's important.
0: And you've talked earlier about how... This was involved in the Murdoch case through the Russell Lafitte trial, how he was a conservator for some of the uh, clients that Alec Murdoch was uh, fleecing of, of money, allegedly fleecing. I guess these are all still pending charges. Right. Um, so that's part of the probate system, the Hampton County probate.
2: Right. He became a conservator over some of the settlements that Alex helped obtain for his clients, and those went through Hampton County Probably court because after they got the settlements, they and he was conservator. That's where it ended up.
0: Well, it sounds like this is a court that touches all sorts of financial dealings with some potentially very lucrative decisions. Um, walk us through
2: why are we talking about this issue today, Jen? So uh, this issue came to light. It's um, it, you know the story's right now. It's based in Darlington and Florence counties, and it's over a very large estate of. Carlos Hanna, who died in two thousand and ten, um, his wife Johanna survived him. She's still alive. She uh, has Alzheimer's and you know lives in a home, and her two sons Bradley and Craig Hanna, who you know were are you know on the will to inherit the estate and help the mother with her affairs. Um, so it's a huge estate, and it's. Um, You know they had attorney Gary Crawford, who's based in Florence. He's a well-known Florence attorney who deals primarily in probate and estates. Um, They had he was handling their case, and they had been trying to get their file because um, Craig believed that there were some asset transfers that were done fraudulent fraudulently um, to his brother. So it was a lot of assets, a lot of assets transferred to his brother. And he wanted to look over it as he you know, had guardianship over his mother. So they, they, along with many other clients of Gary Crawford, were attempting to receive their files. And um, in March, I don't remember the exact date, mid-March on a Sunday afternoon, he went to his office, went out to his car, called 911, and um, died by suicide. He had a self-inflicted gunshot wound when police arrived.
0: The attorney Gary Crawford did
2: yep 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 so I mean all these people who they were saying we're gonna get your files just come back next week um, were left hanging once again because the attorney had died by suicide
0: now in so, the after aftermath of his shocking death Jen and you've got two incredible reports up on fitsnews.com dot com detailing this this whole saga but in the aftermath of his death a lot of shady shady dealings going on within that uh, Darlington County probate court system. In fact, several of them raised in a filing submitted by one of the attorneys for Craig Hanna. But pulling this lens back sort of bigger picture, what kind of abuses are being alleged in this case that you're now looking at and saying, wait a minute, is this happening beyond just these two counties? What kind of abuses are happening in this case first though?
2: So, I mean, there's some pretty there's some pretty heavy allegations made in here, um, specifically um, appointing conservators and guardians over, um, you know, individuals who can't manage their own affairs any longer, who aren't related to the individuals, um, don't necessarily have their best interest in mind. bypassing those who you know who should be in charge of the estate so you know they were trying to sell johanna specifically her primary residence um and you know they did did it without you know they submitted a motion to sell it and the motion was approved by judge lawson in darlington county but it was asked to approve it without notifying the parties um without so notifying that, them Without notifying that with, you know, all of these people who have an interest in, in what happens to the assets of Johanna. So, you know, the um, guardian. So not
0: even for, notifying her guardian.
2: Right. Exactly. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that, um, you know, as we dig into it, we're seeing, you know, the conservator approving, um, allegedly approving transfer of assets and um, them being purchased by the judge himself, I, I, you know, I mean, you know, you can see it in the register of deeds. I mean, there could be an explanation. Maybe he would, you know, I I don't, I can't think of one right now, but you know, we haven't heard the other side of this case. But yeah, there's some really interesting things when you have individuals who aren't necessarily related to the people in charge of their finances and well-being.
0: In fact, one of them and here's a theme that we keep hearing, a, a powerful lawyer legislator, one of the law partners of former South Carolina House Speaker, Jay Lucas. Now, he was clearly appointed by this judge. You're talking about Judge Lawson in Darlington County, clearly appointed uh, as a guardian in this case, and yet he's on the record now denying that he was ever appointed in a sternly issued, uh, sternly worded letter issued to the attorney uh, that's fighting some of these issues in this case, Jen let me ask you this if if the court system is this susceptible to these kind of abuses, mm-hmm. I mean we're talking about again, this is a twenty million dollar estate uh, it, and we've got questionable political appointments which are now being denied, even though there's a clear record that they were made. I mean Jim, right. what's going
2: on here? I mean, it's I think a lot of people got caught in a corner by you know the attorney Tucker players motion and by our story and i mean they immediately judge lawson who was the judge who was over the over the case in darlington immediately recused himself signed his own order recusing himself um, said that um, the guardian and conservator resigned and needed to make it clear that the guardian had never really been uh, been appointed despite his order and transferring it back to Florence County or to some other other county you know if it gets appointed to another county to be transferred to but here, here's the thing in the meantime Johanna who has alzheimers has no guardian so you know she is in a home she if something emergent were to happen to her right now you know if she had a stroke they had to call her you know call call the guardian to you know make some plan of care who is in charge of her i mean it's just it's it's a loophole she's just hanging out there with nobody you know nobody looking out for her well-being
0: so we've got a multi-million dollar estate they were attempting Mm -hmm. to sell a valuable piece of property in fact they an order was issued authorizing its sale without any notification to this guardian a state uh-huh. lawmaker, lawyer, legislator, who now claims he was never even appointed. Right. But when you blew the whistle on it, you're telling me that the judge went back. Well, and send said,
2: it his order. Wow. And transferred everything back.
0: That's a hand in the cookie jar moment if I've ever heard one.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know. You know, when when somebody is appointed as a guardian or conservator, it is required by law that they submit a letter, a fiduciary letter. So this letter, you know, it appoints them officially in this role and it is registered in the Register of Deeds. So that, you know, if somebody were, you know, to need to find out who the conservator or guardian is to somebody, it can easily be pulled. So what I'm finding is that these conservator, these fiduciary letters aren't available anywhere. So people are finding these properties that are transferred and signed off by a conservator, and the only way they know is the signature on the transfer deeds. There's no fiduciary letter in the Register Deeds appointing them in that role.
0: It's unbelievable. And one of the documents that you included in, in your report on this, Jen, it was an attorney literally asking the judge to keep it secret. Right. Not to notify people about it. It's just unbelievable. I wanted to read something to you, Jen, because your reporting has uh, attracted attention from beyond just South Carolina. Obviously, it was all the discussion within South Carolina's court system, everybody talking about your story. But even beyond the borders of South Carolina, I wanted to read this. This is a group called the Center for Estate Administration Reform. Uh, We received a, a, a letter from their executive director, a gentleman by the name of Rick Black. And I wanted to read you a little bit of what he said in this, in this letter, Jen. Uh, quote, probate frauds have sadly become entitlement for too many insiders in South Carolina. From Greenville to Richland to Hampton to Marlborough to Charleston counties, the problems seem to be growing unabated. And this is the quote I really wanted to zero in on for you. He said, and I quote, I fear state leadership has granted state bar members the freedom to weaponize these courts to serve all members at the expense of vulnerable South Carolinians. He's basically saying well-connected lawyers are ripping people off with the stamp of approval of the state's court system, isn't he?
2: Yep. And, you know, with stories like this, you you published the first and second story in the series, and people start reaching out and saying, you know, this happened, I couldn't find anyone to help me. I ran out of money hiring lawyers to figure out what was going on or the lawyers were giving me the runaround. And we've had a number of individuals from varying counties across the state reach out. And we're looking at all that stuff because I do think this is extremely widespread and I think it's gone unchecked for years.
0: Well, absolutely. And Jen, I hope as you continue your incredible reporting on this, I'd love to get some thoughts from some if there are any ethical lawyers in this state about how do we fix this? How do we set up guardrails so that things like this don't happen in the future? Um, I hope you'll be willing to have some of those convos, Jen.
2: Oh, absolutely. And I did reach out to Rick Black and, um, he, and we're going to have a conversation about, you know, some ideas that he has for reform, because I, I think it's time, it's time to make some changes.
0: Absolutely. Jen Wood, excellent work on this story this week. And obviously, we are just getting into this story. We're just starting. If you have experienced uh, fraudulent activity, if you've been the victim of one of these secret ex parte, no notification transfers involving an asset of one of your loved ones, please let us know. Please let us know. Because again, I suspect as you do, I think, Jen, that this story is going to go much bigger than Darlington and Florence County. I think this is the sort of story that's going to have tentacles throughout the state. Um, yeah. Jen, amazing work. Thank you so much. And again, first of all, thank you for taking such an incredibly complicated issue and really making it digestible for people because this stuff is not easy. I mean, this is complicated
2: probate law is extremely, extremely complicated And, you know, every county in South Carolina has one probate judge who is popularly elected. Um, And and they they aren't required to have a law degree. I mean, some do, but many don't. So, you know, it's a complicated facet of our legal system. And I think think if people were to understand it a little better, which I'm hoping I'm helping with, um, I think they could, you know, protect themselves and know what to look for.
0: Absolutely. Just a huge, wide-open avenue for potential corruption, and it. it seems as you've uncovered some actual corruption. Um, Jen, thank you for exposing it, and let's see what we can get done on this issue. We're uh, working together moving forward.
2: Sounds good. Thanks for having me.
0: All right, so ever since the United States Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade and thrust the issue of abortion back onto the state, South Carolina has gone back and forth on this issue, people, back and forth. In 2021, Lawmakers in the Republican-controlled General Assembly passed what is known as the heartbeat bill, which banned all abortions after six weeks. Now, this legislation was overturned by the state Supreme Court back in January of this year, A very controversial 3-2 decision, which overturned that heartbeat law and sent it back to the General Assembly. Well, guess what? Lawmakers have sent the Supreme Court another heartbeat bill, essentially, which bans abortions after six weeks. So what's changed? Well, according to law, uh, lawyers for Planned Parenthood, not much. Let's cut to a clip from a court hearing just yesterday in front of Judge Clifton Newman. Here's what they had to say. So
2: that's back to my question. Am I being asked to overrule the
0: Supreme Court? Respectfully, Honor, no, you aren't. And I think that's true for several reasons. The first reason is that the narrow issue before the Supreme Court in the Planned Parenthood case was the validity of the 2021 Act. This again is a new law, it's entitled to a strong presumption of validity, and it's actually a new law that was intentionally designed to address some of the alleged defects in that
1: prior law. In other words, it is not purely controlling on a new law.
2: your honor i might would agree with him if the new law was a seven-week ban but it's not it's the exact same time limit It's six weeks thank you
0: all right so what has changed between the bill that was overturned by the supreme court and the bill that is now apparently headed back to the supreme court because judge clifton newman did issue a temporary injunction on the enforcement of this new legislation before it's heard by the Supreme Court. So, effectively, status quo is still in place until the Supreme Court hears this challenge to the state's newest abortion law. But have things changed? Again, that was the, you, you heard the attorneys there. They said that basically nothing's changed. But there were a couple key points from the 2021 bill that have been addressed in the 2023 bill. Because I want to rewind the clock back to that first debate over the heartbeat bill, which was found unconstitutional. The key vote there was Justice John Few. And Justice John Few called out lawmakers basically saying, you have imposed this arbitrary six-week deadline. There's no science underpinning it. You just basically pulled this number out of your asses, essentially. And also, you're not having any, any discussion about a woman's right to have sufficient time to make this decision. I wanted, I wanted to get, get into this a little bit. It's, uh, it's the notion of informed choice. Informed choice. That's what Few basically said. Because lawmakers said in their bill, an informed choice, but then they admitted later on, hey, well, we, we had absolutely nothing we based that on. Our timeline's totally arbitrary. So how, how can you have an informed choice with an arbitrary timeline? It's a good question. That was Judge Fuse, Justice Few's question. Well, in the new bill, that informed choice language has been stripped it's out. Lawmakers are no longer no longer referring to that. So they're hoping that'll get them out of that legal loophole there. But they also did something else which I think is very interesting. What they did was they established through again a scientific process, a delineation, exactly when they believe exactly when they believe conception occurs, implantation occurs, and when a woman would need to know through a through a EPT test when she's pregnant. They define these things in the bill. So no longer would the justice on the court, Justice John Few, be able to say, oh, well, you just arbitrarily did this. Well, no. Lawmakers actually said, hey, we have defined specifically when we are saying that this process starts, when the clock starts, which, again, obviously that imposes a tremendous obligation on the women of South Carolina as far as getting those pre- uh, pregnancy tests, but they have at the very least now no longer imposed an arbitrary standard. So they removed that language about informed choice and they defined an, uh, a non-arbitrary standard. Now here's where this gets important. Just as few is the key vote here. Just as few is the key vote here because I'm telling you, I talked to State Senator Tom Davis earlier. Tom Davis has been one of the few Republicans who has been very sensible on this issue, not being pulled from one side or the other, Senator Davis is, is Catholic, he's pro-life, uh, but he has also throughout this process been very attuned to trying to do the right thing here as far as particularly the exemptions and some of these specific objections that were raised by Justice Few. And I talked to Tom Davis, and one of the things he told me, uh, and I quote, this is what he said, quote, If the reason the fetal heartbeat bill is upheld three to two is because the only female justice was replaced I don't think that's a good look for South Carolina. He said, I don't think that's a good look for South Carolina. Guess what? Senator Davis is absolutely right. He's absolutely right because when this issue was decided back in January, Justice Kay Hearn was on the court. She's now no longer on the court. She retired and replaced by Justice Garrison Hill. Now Hill is going to be a vote for the legislature on this, a vote to uphold this piece of legislation. So this is going to be upheld. In fact, go ahead. If you're following this issue, if you're you're pro-life or pro-choice, this is all really semantics because guess what? The new heartbeat bill, heartbeat two, whatever you want to call it, the six-week and after ban, it will be upheld by the South Carolina Supreme Court. But the question, what is that margin going to be? And that's going to be very significant on the campaign trail. It's going to be very significant as some of these Republican lawmakers face challenges from the right. In certain districts, from the left and other districts, because, again, this put Republicans on the hot seat once already. That seat is now scorching, scorching, as this case says to the Supreme Court. And if it is a 3-2 vote based on the only woman on the court no longer being there, man, that temperature is going to rise even higher, even higher. So we'll be watching very closely to see if these changes that state senators and state representatives put into this bill In an effort to get justice Few to see it as constitutional, we'll be very interested to see if that works. Because if they don't, and if this is a 3-2 vote, in the immoral words of Senator Davis, all hell could break loose. All hell could break loose. But keep tuned to Fitz News. Listen, we've been covering this issue for years as it's made its way through the General Assembly. Like Senator Davis, I am pro-life, but I also see the point for these exemptions. But wherever you fall on this issue, know that Fitz News, we have an open microphone as we do on every issue. So please, you've got a view on it divergent from ours, different from ours, contrary to ours, we'd love to share it with our audience because again, that's what we're here for. That's what the marketplace of ideas is all about. But count on us to continue to focus on this issue. And unlike the mainstream media, who don't even they don't even talk about these key issues, folks. I was looking before we did this segment. None of the media are talking about these changes. We dive into it. We tell you exactly why the bills are different and exactly why that matters and could matter down down the road as this thing heads to the Supreme Court. But keep it tuned to Fitz News as it does for the very latest on South Carolina's ongoing abortion debate. Hi right, folks, that's a wrap for this week's edition of The Week in Review. I want to thank you for tuning in. Obviously a lot coming up as the 2024 presidential primary heats up. New candidates jumped in the race this week. We covered those announcements extensively on Fitznews.com but if you want to see how your preferred presidential prospect did, check out our Palmetto Political Stock Index. There it is, that gorgeous graphic. Every time I see it, I get excited. Mark Powell and I compile that every week, giving you an update on how the various contenders are faring. But as we dove into national issues quite a bit this past week, folks, I got into some geopolitical hotspots. Talking about the Strait of Hormuz people. Who knew? I knew about all that good stuff. And not only that, the NATO drama in the Baltic, I covered that this week. USS Gerald R. Ford, check those articles out on Fitznews.com. But I wanted to bring you a little bit of a preview about next week's episode. This coming week, Special Projects Director Dylan I will be headed to the border. Dylan Nolan did a huge piece on the latest developments on the U.S.-Mexican border this past week. Well, guess what? We're going to see it for ourselves this coming week. So be on the lookout in next week's Week in Review for a big package on the issue of of border security, how it's impacting not only our country, but the state of South Carolina. We're going to bring you everything that we see there so that you can make an informed decision for yourself. Because once again, as we were talking about earlier on the abortion debate, that's why we're here, people, to host a conversation here in the marketplace of ideas. We're glad you checked into this conversation, and we look forward to seeing you next time on The Week in Review.